1: This is New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, and I'm joined by Sophia Muskalenko, who, with Mia Bloom, authored the new book, Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon. And Sophia Muskalenko is a psychologist studying mass identity, intergroup conflict, and conspiracy theories. Her research on the psychology of radicalization has been presented at scientific conferences, government briefings, radio broadcasts, and international television newscasts. She's written several books, including the award-winning Friction, How Conflict Radicalizes Them and Us, and The Marvel of Martyrdom, The Power of Self-Sacrifice in the Selfish World. Maskelenko received her PhD in social and clinical psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, and most recently was here on the podcast for her book with Clark McCauley called Radicalization What Everyone Needs to Know. Sophia, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming back as a return guest. This book has a ton of recent information. How did it come together and how did you get it out so quickly?
0: Yes. So this was really a lightning speed production and I can thank uh, Stanford University Press for that. They really had a vision for putting out this book to, to satisfy the, the curiosity, the hunger that a lot of people feel for this QAnon movement, which is relatively recent. It only began in 2016. And until January 6th, you know, most people may never have heard of it, or if they heard of it, it would be something very vague. And so there was this incredible opportunity for Mia Bloom and myself to just, you know, collect every crumb that was out there in order to arrive at a place where we had what we think is a pretty good understanding of how QAnon evolved, what attracted people to it. Um, what kept them in it, despite all the drawbacks of belonging to this um, you know, crazy conspiracy theory, cult-like movement, um, and also to
1: have an idea of what can be done to get people out of it. So for starters, can I ask you to explain what QAnon is to folks who have probably seen it in the news, have heard a little bit about it? But just to provide a basis for our conversation, what are we talking about when we're referring to QAnon?
0: Right. So QAnon is a baseless and debunked conspiracy theory, or rather, it's an umbrella of a whole lot of different conspiracy theories, which include um, the idea that there are lizard people, um, human-lizard hybrids that are living among us and that the earth is flat. And there are some lasers in outer space controlled by Jews that are used in order to burn down California wild forests to make room for a super highway. Um, But the really main idea behind QAnon is that there is a cabal of blood sucking, sadistic Satan worshipers um, who abduct children around the world in order to torture them and sexually exploit them and to drink their blood, which they believe contains this chemical called adrenochrome um, that the cabal they claim use in order to rejuvenate themselves and stimulate um, themselves, kind of like like a like an addictive drug. And this cabal, QAnon claims, includes. Of course, Bill and Hillary Clinton, um, George Soros, um, the Rothschild family, um, Bill Gates, as well as famous Hollywood uh, personalities such as Tom Hanks and Oprah and Lady Gaga
1: and a whole bunch of other famous people. And you've done a lot of research in the past on extremism, violent extremism, Would you classify QAnon as an extremist group, or is it something different?
0: I came to this project fully expecting to research this new radical, maybe terrorist group that is QAnon. But through the time that I spent researching case studies and available data on QAnon, I've came, I've come to the conclusion that it's not like any terrorist movement that I've researched before, and I've researched a few. Um, that QAnon is a group with radical beliefs, but even these beliefs, for most people um, who hold them, do not imply a necessity to do something bad. And then when it comes to radical action, Um, so, you know, you're talking about ISIS or Al-Qaeda or some right-wing radical groups, you see that most people who belong to these groups, they have this radical ideology, but also they're gearing up and preparing and engaging in some radical action. This is not at all the case for QAnon followers. So even though vast majority of them will subscribe to some, if not all of these crazy conspiracy beliefs, they will never do anything about it. So out of about 35 million QAnon believers in the United States alone, this is according to recent polls, about 35 million Americans believe these things. How many have actually ever committed any kind of radical action? The answer is about 60. And that includes all of those QAnon followers who were present at the January 6th storming of the Capitol Hill. So the proportion of QAnon followers who engaged in radical action is so minuscule that we can't in good faith classify QAnon, call QAnon
1: a radical group. It's something else. One of my favorite things about the book. I would say my favorite thing is the figure you have, the psychology of Q Anonization. Mm-hmm. And I know with your background, I kind of want to I, I feel like I might be just jumping into the middle, but I really wanted to get to talk with you about this. And I should note that you cite, is it Christian Warpinsky mm-hmm. as developing this with you? The, the approach the book takes is really to understand the the reason or the logic behind why someone would engage with this this type of this type of movement and one of the things you start with describing is this idea of unfreezing social domains can you explain what that is and and how that's how that's woven into this psychologists believe that we
0: human beings most of the time we're kind of like moving along like rails that are set for us by the society, our family, our coworkers, our friends. And even though we're technically free to move off of them, we actually don't. Because the social norms um, and the expectations and the understanding that we would kind of, uh, you know, look silly or weird or stupid to people who are important to us, they keep us kind of, you know, frozen in this lifestyle that we have. So we do good things like, you know, participate in in elections, pay our taxes, you know, don't abuse our our fellow humans, because we are worried about the consequences that our social environment uh, might have for us. And we don't do bad things for the same reasons. Now, this is true for most people most of the time. But sometimes something can happen to a person. Maybe, you know, they lose their home, their family. They are fired from their job. They have to move to a place where they don't know anybody. And they all of a sudden find themselves without these external tethers, that had kept them behaving and thinking and feeling in a certain way. And this is a state that most people find very uncomfortable. We are social creatures. We de- depend on others for a lot of things, including a moral scale what's right and what's wrong, you know, who is a good person, who's a bad person, and, wh- and where do I fall on this continuum. And so, this unfrozen state. Is unpleasant and people will seek anybody and anything to kind of attach themselves to in this situation. We discuss this unfrozen state um, in our books with Clark McCauley when we talk about radicalization because a lot of times radical groups and radical movements will specifically seek out people in this unfrozen state knowing that they're vulnerable to radicalization. So they will look for, you know, college students who just dropped out or somebody who is. Um, like, you know, wandering the train station kind of aimlessly, you know, looking lost and bewildered. Um, And so we know from research that unfreezing is a vulnerable point that makes somebody susceptible to influence, even malicious influence um, of others. And with QAnon, I believe what we're observing is this unfreezing happening on massive scale, where our entire society has been slowly drifting away from these pillars that you know let us know what's good and what's bad, who is an authority, what to trust. Um, and little by little, we ended up, even before COVID, even before Trump presidency, which it seems, you know, in a lot of ways intended to undermine these pillars, um, even before that, we ended up Um, As a society, in a place where we were kind of lost with um, our moral compasses, so to speak, the religion um, of every religions of every denomination has gone through a um, sex abuse scandal, most notably the Catholic Church, but it happened to pretty much every church in the United States. Um, And so religion is no longer a place where a lot of people turn for understanding of What's morally right and what's morally wrong? Um, the government has lost a lot of its credibility. Um, I mean, for especially for conservatives in the United States, um, the the most profound thing that that um, affected it was Bill Clinton Bill Clinton's um, affair with Monica Lewinsky, and then the lying about it. Um, before Trump became president, there was a poll where they asked people um you know how much they uh they liked a bunch of things and it includes included things like um the US Congress uh, but also it included included things like colonoscopy and they found that they preferred colonoscopy to US Congress so the government lost its position of authority that we can trust and you know science in in the 60s and 70s it was this you know great promise that science was going to make our lives better it was going to find answers to very important questions including questions of of meaning in life and yet our daily experience with science for a lot of people comes down to what kinds of pesticides do i need to avoid today when i'm grocery shopping for my family or what kind of drug is recalled this month because they found that there were some unscrupulous um you know pharmaceuticals and uh and scientists aided that, and so science has lost its authority. Um, Hollywood, of course, with the you know the Me Too crisis, kind of um, shaking our our faith in this American dream that Hollywood really helped to create, um, and so we all of us ended up in this place of of cultural unfreezing um, at a time when COVID crisis struck. Um, which of course introduced an immense threat uh, in the form of this invisible virus. And we had to rely on some authority to tell us what it is, how afraid we should be of it, what should we do about it, if anything. Um, And a lot of people found that they couldn't trust any of these established authorities. So they turned to the internet because during the lockdowns that's pretty much the only place a lot of us could turn. And very quickly, through these algorithms on Facebook and on and, and YouTube, they would arrive from a simple question like, you know, what is the COVID virus or um, something about the vaccine? They would arrive at completely deranged um, videos claiming that, you know, the virus was created in order to enslave the human population and the vaccines are carrying microchips that are going to help Bill Gates track us and so on and so forth. So this massive cultural unfreezing created very fertile ground for disinformation that was lurking on the internet and The COVID lockdowns just
1: made it a lot more accessible to a lot of people. I think the way that you've put this together is really helpful because it can be dismissive to think of these things as as crazy when we know that they're unfactual, but you really do break down that there is this larger social component going on and then individual pieces to this. And I, I think it's useful to kind of look through those one by one. But from from your perspective as a psychologist, I wanted to also ask you about a couple of things you mentioned in the book uh, one of which is about the role of the familiar and how our brain is wired to recognize these things How do our cognitive biases just as humans all of us kind of play into this perfect storm of factors that have that have emerged in this these recent years
0: We have a few, heuristics, rules of thumb that we resort to, especially if, you know, we're stressed out, if we're short on time, if we can't really tackle the problem in its full complexity. Um, our minds create shortcuts for itself in order to make the best out of a, a very difficult situation, um, such as an overwhelming amount of information that you don't really um, have enough tools to process. One of mm-hmm. the shortcuts is called the availability heuristic. For example, you're thinking about some problem and uh, you're looking online for solutions and one of the solutions, um, it, it reminds you of something that you already have heard somewhere or, or, or seen somewhere. And so your mind latches onto that. It tells you that This is the right solution, just because it's an easy feeling that the mind is experiencing, Um, and so in QAnon folklore, there is a huge number of tropes that they borrowed um, or plagiarized, whatever you wanna um, you wanna call it, from popular culture, Um, starting with the cabal of child-abducting, blood-drinking Jews, you know, which is directly taken from centuries-old um, propaganda piece that was produced by the um, Russian czar's secret police in the 19th century in order to foment hatred to Jews in the Russian Empire. Um, and it's just proven a really resilient trope. It keeps surfacing again and again, Um, Mm -hmm. and it again makes an appearance in QAnon folklore. Um, but, uh, even more interestingly, uh, George Soros appears to be another, um, very available monster in our subconsciousness because it just keeps, um, appearing in different kinds of propaganda. It started out with, um, uh, Victor Orban's reelection campaign in Hungary. Um, they were, looking to run a negative campaign, but there was just really nobody who opposed Orban. And so his campaign managers came up with this ingenious plan to create a monster out of pretty much nothing. And they picked Soros, uh, who was a convenient target because um, everybody knew his name. He was very famous. He was Jewish. So there was already this underlying kind of unease you know, with him. Um, and he didn't He was known for not fighting back these political campaigns against him. And so they ran this campaign. It was immensely successful. And then it was picked up around the world in one country after another, including in Israel, which is amazing. Um, But again, Soros is a very popular um, monster in QAnon folklore, um, probably because a lot of people in America have heard his name in connection to something else that was circulating um in this you know internet space where things are not factual but very often fictional
1: so we have this space with these unfrozen spo- social domains and we have this folklore with familiar tropes and stories that can try to help explain some of those social domain issues but you also explain that this has a payoff psychologically for the individual. And you talk about the utility of believing these things or investing it in these different stories or narratives mm-hmm. and the different types of that. Can you can you talk a little bit more about those four types of utility and, and why those are so persuasive and maybe convincing someone to go along with something that even they may think, eh, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, so I was struck by
0: by reading through case studies of QAnon followers um, with how often their following QAnon led to adverse life circumstances for them. Um, Some people lost their livelihoods. Um, Some people um, lost their families because their families didn't want to put up with their, you know, spewing QAnon content at dinner tables. Um, People neglected their children because they spent all of their time uh, in front of the computer searching for clues and, and uh connecting the dots and so on. And it it's just such a high price to pay. And so the question that you know I, I was looking to answer was what are they paying this price for? These these things came up again and again in what how people describe their experience with QAnon. Um one major trend was that. It allowed them to socialize, especially at a time when socialization was so hard to come by during COVID lockdowns, Um, QAnon forums offered this community that was always there. It was always buzzing day and night. You could just log into your computer anytime. And there were people there who shared your beliefs and it made you feel less isolated and less alone. And so people were willing to pay a high price for that, it turns out. Sometimes real relationships are more difficult to maintain than these imagined relationships that don't require you to, you know, cook dinner and put up with other people's di- people's disagreements with what you're saying. Um, another trend that 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 I could see in, in these people talking about their experiences was that participating in QAnon discussions. And finding answers to these, they believed, you know, fundamental questions about how the world really works, these secret, you know, uh, behind the scenes dealings that they thought they were investigating, it made them feel really smart. Like Q-Drops and QAnon Experience was originally designed in the same way that computer games are designed. Um, it they were set up as as a series of puzzles that people would come together and solve kind of like in an escape room. And as such, they were made to keep you engaged. So, you know, you would feel uh, like you've worked really hard and, and other people also helped. And in the end, you arrived at this clue. You got the piece of the puzzle right. And you would feel on top of the world, quite literally, like now, you know, what nobody else knows about who is really behind the COVID, you know, virus and and what the vaccines are going to do. You were smarter than all of these rubes who are just listening to the mainstream media and not realizing the first thing about, you know, how the world really is. So this cognitive utility, this feeling of intellectual superiority was another Huge attraction um, for a lot of people. Um, there were also emotional um, sides to this QAnon experience that attracted people. That had to do with the fact that in the QAnon conspiracy, uh, in the QAnon um, experience, you got to share and partake of these really deep seated um, emotions like righteous anger at the people in power who, instead of doing their job for the money they get, kind of just ruining the world and making the future very uncertain for you and and for your children and putting you in a situation where you are stuck at home and it's not clear when you're gonna be able to get out and it's not clear how life is gonna be ever back to normal again. So these feelings of of anger, You could share them freely without being afraid of being sanctioned for hate speech or, you know, being called a racist or a hypocrite or any of those things that, you know, keep people from from sharing these emotions. Feelings of of fear wrapped in this narrative, you know, of sinister Satan worshiping um, cabal. Right. You could tell this story in order to just express the fear that you feel about how you have so little control of your life. And that's a very valuable commodity that QAnon supplied for a lot of people in the United States where, you know, many people feel very unsafe um, expressing their emotions freely. There, there's a lot of stigma, um, you know, especially for for men, but even for women in expressing
1: emotions and negative emotions specifically like anger and fear. So really and and this again it's my favorite part of the book. I feel like from left to right this really walks us through how something like the Bill Cosby arrest for his um act for his behavior could translate to a narrative that seems far-fetched but why that has a payoff for someone in a, in a very clear way Um, because each one of these unfrozen social domains is going to impact people differently and different people will probably require different types of utility.
0: Absolutely. And it's just, it's important to understand that these massive social changes that we're all going through, you know, the, the changing definitions of, of gender, And marriage and the more like the more presence of of people of color in every kind of occupation where they didn't used to be present. Um, For a lot of people, it makes the reality very, very uncertain and unpleasant. And narratives are our human way of dealing with reality that we can't really process on the surface. So, this is queuing on is kind of like a community um community wide narrative making um trying to mm-hmm. come to terms with a rapidly changing world where they feel they have very little control and they fear for their future and as far as you know we can label these people and we can you know feel angry at them and and feel like they're Fears are misplaced and their concerns are ill-informed. All of that may be true. But at the same time, we can't dismiss the facts that there really are unaddressed issues of trust between our most important institutions and our people. And they affect us all, not just on. We're all dealing with them in different ways. on is, you know... Probably like, you know, on the bell curve to the side, not the mainstream way of dealing with it. But if we want to preserve our democracy and our society, we need to address these long standing divisions um, like racism and like sexism um, and accountability of the government and science um, that are pressing on all of us. And so we can feel about queuing on however we want, but I think we need to maybe consider that they are um a symptom of a larger problem that's affecting us all.
1: And you mentioned changing gender roles. The book talks a lot about the role of women. Um what was your thought and what was important to cover in this book? And, wh- and why did you choose to highlight women's role in this way?
0: QAnon is unusual as far as political movements of, of radical inclination in that it is so heavily skewed toward women. Usually when we look at radical movements, terrorist movements, it's mostly men. But QAnon has a lot of women. We don't know exactly how many because it's it's... Um, again, it's very new. We don't have a lot of research and there's just so many of them, it's hard to get a representative sample. But it seems like maybe 50-50 or maybe even more women than men. Um, and so that in itself is, is very interesting to me and very telling. Why were women flocking to this fringe movement um, when usually women tend to stay outside? Um, and? I think that women have been in the United States, because the book mostly talks about QAnon in the United States, um, have been dealt a very unfair hand. Um, So on the one side, there were major advances in getting women um, education equal to men and getting women into workforce, you know, kind of in the the same way as men. Um, But at the same time as this was happening and women were more likely to go to college and more likely to get a career, um, at the same time as this was happening, pretty much all of the domestic duties in the United States remain in women's corner. Child rearing, cooking and cleaning and shopping for the household are overwhelmingly women's responsibility. And so on the one hand, you have the pressure to succeed in the workplace, to to make money. Um, On the other hand, you have this added workload at home waiting for you. And then add to that also that women are not compensated equal as men in the workplace. So they work the same amount of time, but they don't get paid as much. And it's very hard for women to to maintain this, you know, idyllic lifestyle of the nineteen fifties white family where it was just the men working because the economy has shifted and very few people can afford to be a single earner household. So all these pressures on women um just create a very um difficult environment. And and if you're raising a child in the United States, that's another level of difficulty because um you know there's very little help from the government, Um, there's no nuclear family that's ready to jump in and help like there is in more traditional societies. Um, Childcare is really, really expensive. So women are just being torn in every direction. And again, trying to make sense of this very difficult situation with no light at the end of the tunnel, QAnon offered these women a way to vent their frustrations, Express their collective fear for the children, even though it's these you know fictional children who you know were abducted by some evil you know um, s- Satanist somewhere. Um, but it's a place where they can connect on this visceral level and share emotions and share frustrations and provide
1: support and comfort to each other that they. Really, really neat. And you mentioned a lot of things that were long simmering but have come to a head with the pandemic. And and isolation in the United States in general is another one of those factors that, that you address. Are there other factors? I think you also mentioned the role of like post-traumatic stress in in some of the folks who engaged with QAnon. Are there other factors you think were either remarkable or things you thought were surprising to note in the research of, of things that may have impacted either at a societal level or an individual level, someone's um, susceptibility to want to engage with this type of of movement?
0: So I was really surprised to see the prevalence of psychopathology among QAnon followers. Um, and the reason I was surprised was twofold. One is terrorists and radicals whom I normally research are actually less likely to have a mental health issue than an average person on the street. They, they are actually uh, more likely to be mentally well. Um, So that was just running opposite to everything that I usually see in my work on radicalization and terrorism. Um, And the second reason why it was striking is that, for example, among QAnon followers who were present at the January 6th um, riot in Capitol Hill, 68% of them have had a diagnosis of psychopathology in the past. So that percentage is just mind boggling um, to compare it with the general American population in the Latest um, data that we have available from National Institute of Health, um, about 19 percent, 19, one nine um, of Americans have had a diagnosis of mental health illness. So among QAnon, that number was three and a half times as large as it was in the general American population. That's very, very high. Um, and it seems to me like it's it it explains maybe why some people were more likely to fall under the QAnon spell if they were already suffering from anxiety and then watching these videos, you know, promoting QAnon content, it would just drive them even deeper into the state of just, you know, panic um, and, and wanting to do something about it. And so little by little they would get sucked into QAnon or if somebody was Suffering from paranoia because of you know mania having to do with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, of course, queuing on content would just amplify it tremendously. Um, Another um, interesting thing that I don't really discuss a lot in the book, just because there was you know that was a a huge issue and it seemed like there was not enough space in the book to talk about it, um, is the 2008. Housing crisis. Um, I think it really impacted a lot of people who ended up in QAnon, which is white, um, kind of middle class Americans. uh, Because for them, they grew up with the idea of the American dream necessarily including owning your own house. And in 2008, this idea of owning your own house just came crashing down for a lot of people resulting in in horrific scenarios and their life saving erased and and their credit history uh, ruined and just making their lives miserable for a long time after that and not a single you know banker went to jail for that so that yet again for a lot of people raised questions of accountability and government transparency and conspiracy, you know, to keep some people rich while some people suffer um, to make make that happen. Um, So I think there's a lot more that can be said about QAnon than we said in this book, but um, this is probably not the last book on QAnon, you know, this is a story that is still unfolding and we're still doing research. I'm still
1: collecting data. And I will be very curious to see how those turn out. It's definitely a starting point. There's a lot of questions and there's a lot of stuff I'm sure we won't even get to talk about in this interview, but really interesting stuff. And I want to make sure to ask you about the part of the book that discusses what to do if someone that you know, is engaging with QAnon. And I think this is really important to reference back to the previous work you've done that you spoke about earlier, um, about the difference between belief and action. Mm -hmm. When do we need to be concerned about someone's activity related to a conspiracy theory like QAnon?
0: I see these warnings, you know, about QAnon becoming terrorists um, from... Different directions, you know, from some from the government, some from researchers. And I just don't think it's worth our time and our resources to worry about that where it comes to QAnon. I just don't see this crystallizing into anything like ISIS, even though some people make that comparison. I don't believe it's warranted. I do believe we need to worry about QAnon undermining the public faith in our institution and in institutions and in our democracy. And we already saw some of the effects of this when it came to vaccinations where you know they spread these conspiracy theories about how vaccines are harmful and we we have data to show that people who were exposed to these were less likely to to say that they would get the vaccine and more likely to say that they would never do it. And that has some real public health consequences and we're all going to be paying a price for that. If not with our health, then with our tax dollars. So that is a very serious problem that I don't think we can afford to ignore because January 6th was just, you know, maybe the first in a series of things that we might see if we let this stuff simmer um, and and not attend to it. Um, As far as what can we do about it? In the book, I give a number of recommendations that can be done if the government was serious about getting involved in this effort. You know, we can and should provide better education to our children as far as critical thinking is concerned and teaching them media literacy and social media literacy and how to identify good sources from bad sources and what makes for quality research and what makes for just you know nothing to talk about. Uh, we don't do any of that right now in, in in an average American school and very, very little in an average American college. It it really should change. Um, we really should demand more transparency from the social media giants. They have become public squares um where we all interact and those spaces need to be better uh viewed and better regulated. Um but as far as what we can do as individuals, you know, I'd like to start with what we shouldn't do. So we have a lot of research that says it's really really unhelpful to try to argue with people about their beliefs. So approaching a QAnon supporter, whether it's your loved one or your next door neighbor, and just trying to contradict them and, and give them facts that contradict their opinions and, and tell them how they're wrong, is actually likely to do the opposite of what you would have hoped. So in the day or two, even if you won the argument, the person is going to arrive at a point where they're even more entrenched in their opinions than they were before talking to you. Putting people on the defensive makes them build more defenses, you know? So really, if you can at all, avoid confrontations, avoid arguing with them and posturing and, and, you know, trying to show to them that their beliefs are stupid. It's really not going to do any good and it might do bad. So what can you do then? Um, One thing you can do is just to be there for those people in your life who are deep into QAnon rabbit hole or who are just teetering on the the edge, you know, QAnon curious. Because for a lot of them, like I said, QAnon is a, a social outlet because they lack companionship. They lack friendships. They lack people that they feel close to in their lives. And so the best we can do is just be there for them in hope that one day when they feel open enough, they would turn to you instead of queuing on online. Um, there is research from positive psychology and mindfulness that taking a walk in nature um, makes people, people's op- opinions less polarized. So if you have a loved one who is really, really, you know, opinionated about queuing on, have a nice walk with them in the park or somewhere in the greenery. And after about 30 minutes, they're likely to be a lot less oppositional in their opinions. Um, And just connecting with people on an emotional plane, connecting with QAnon supporters on an emotional plane rather than on this cognitive argumentative plane um, is like is more likely
1: to bring them around than arguing and contradicting them. Finally, in the book, you talk about the international element of this, and I guess first from a national security standpoint, this content doesn't come, you know, from a vacuum. What is the role of other nation states or other actors in some of the content generation and um, proliferation of content related to this movement?
0: Um. We have unequivocal data that Kremlin-based outlets, including official media, as well as, um, you know, page trolls and and bots have from a very early point in QAnon's development supported and um, amplified their content. Uh, So from the very first posts, QAnon enjoyed more visibility thanks to the Russian-backed individuals and, and groups um, and and just trolls that the Russian state sponsors. Um, there is probably some involvement of other nations, but I don't feel as qualified to speak on that as I do on, on the Russian side. Um, Russia is pretty well invested into the QAnon phenomenon They have um, kind of uh, altered their content to fit the Russian um, uh, popular media and interests um, in order to drive the same kinds of changes in society. So, for example, QAnon content in the United States often features Hillary Clinton. She's their main villain, you know, child-eating, blood-sucking monster. But Hillary Clinton is not very popular in Russia. People don't really care about her too much. So they, in the Russian version of this that was uh, spread by Kremlin-backed media, they switched Hillary for Rothschild, who sounds kind of Jewish in in Russian language um, and is also this, you know, very rich person. So right away, these, you know, negative stereotypes are triggered. Um, and the the narrative claims similarly that Rothschild is involved in um, spreading uh, the COVID virus and the vaccines that are designed in order to track the population. And in the in these messages, they also included information about uh, specific labs in specific neighboring to Russia countries that produce the COVID virus and the bad vaccines at Rothschild's directions. And all of these countries where they claimed the vaccines were produced were the ones that are really critical about Russia's politics, like Ukraine and Georgia. So Russia is very, very uh, good at, at using this kind of propaganda for its own purposes. And if they weren't um, involved in creating the narrative, they certainly helped to spread it in the United States
1: to their own advantage. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could I ask, what are you working on for your next project? Um,
0: I am continuing work on QAnon. Um, I feel it's going to be um, important for a while. I don't think it's going to dissolve, as some people say. I think it's going to morph into you know, something or some things else. Um, and I'm also now working on... Um, this population of incels, you know, the involuntarily celibate um, and, you know, trying to understand how this, again, sizable proportion of of our population is feeling so disenfranchised as to develop this um, very severe um, mythology and narrative um, that is very hostile to especially women, but the society as it is today.
1: Well, best of luck with those. And I hope we get to talk with you again for one of your future works. And thank you for being on the show today. My great pleasure. Thank you so much. Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon by Mia Bloom and Sophia Muskalenko is available now from Stanford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.